In Hampstead, there is a suitcase in a mansion block flat overlooking South End Green. It's mine. In my imagination, it's still there, although I know that it's not. I left it behind in autumn 1973. The suitcase contains papers, some undergraduate attempts at fiction and essays. Most would be embarrassing to look at today, although two pieces were quite good. Also in this valise was a Kelly Green mohair pullover, a gift from my not-quite ex-girlfriend's parents the previous Christmas, plus an assortment of basic clothing, not well laundered. The flat was above a bookstore where, according to the blue plaque, George Orwell once worked. I was room-sitting for an acquaintance from my college in America. She was off on a month-long jaunt. The flat was owned by a gay man who rented out rooms to young women. He was a Roddy McDowellish character, connected to the theater, and very much a mother hen to his tenants. I think he regarded me as a fox in his coop. It was September, and the weather was exceptionally fine. The windows were open all day long, and a steady, pile-driving din came through them. A hundred yards up the road, the new Royal Free Hospital was under construction. There is no reason to remember these mundane details, except, for me, those weeks when summer elided into autumn are the moment when the clock stopped, when events changed the course of my life. Ambivalence is a hard thing to deal with in history. A simple narrative is what we all crave. Chains of causation that are obvious to everyone. The Germans invade Poland and war is declared. All life changes. Simple as that. But an aggregation of events that topples old structures of governance and assumptions about how society works without a clear new indicator of what direction government and society are heading. Well, that's more difficult for historians to handle. The facts in a causal chain are what's needed to make a case for my often expressed belief that autumn 1973 was a turning point. It wasn't until another recent turning point I discovered data to support my theory. Following the crash of 2008, as the recession deepened and austerity took hold, I had to report on growing wealth inequality. I kept coming across study after study demonstrating wage stagnation for most Americans began in 1973. Fact, between 1946 and 1973, household income surged 74%. Since 1973, it has gone up by only 10%. Almost all economic studies of the post-war era, no matter what facet of the economy you're looking at, use 1973 as the dividing line. Fact, American steel production peaked in 1973. Here's a story that underlines the economic data and demonstrates how things changed. That same September, as my first sojourn in London was coming to an end, there was an industrial dispute coming to a head in the United States. At the automobile manufacturer Chrysler, which employed 117,000 members of the United Auto Workers Union, spread out over three shifts, seven days a week, workers were preparing to strike. The issue wasn't pay, which was pretty good already. The issue was overtime and retirement. The workers wanted to be able to refuse overtime. 
Chrysler, famous for its big cars, had set sales records the previous year. To meet demand, most workers were on a six-day week, nine hours a day. But younger workers, with no seniority to hide behind, found themselves doing 12-hour days, seven days a week. Workers also wanted to retire after 30 years on the job with full pension and health benefits. The company's concern was that if someone started on the assembly line at 18, that meant retirement at 48. A 23-year-old working the line that year, who already had five years towards his pension, had a life expectancy of 65. The actuarial table said a 38-year-old would make it to 61. Paying pensions out for more than a decade was something the company management did not want to do. Management didn't want full benefits to kick in until workers reached the age of 56. The company played hardball. The workers went on strike for the first time in 23 years. After nine days, Chrysler's management caved in. How many assumptions about the world are included in those numbers, and how different they are from the world of today? That a person would work for a single employer for 30 years that unions were strong enough to win disputes, that an American automobile manufacturer would be selling so many cars that it needed to run three shifts a day, seven days a week, that an assembly line worker's pay, relative to the cost of living, was good enough that he wouldn't need to work extra hours to make ends meet, that a union for just one auto manufacturer would have 117,000 members, in 1973, the total membership of the UAW was close to one and a half million. Today, it's a little over 300,000, although more than double that number are still collecting pensions. The life expectancy numbers were wrong as well. What caused the change? A month after the strike ended came the Arab oil embargo. The price of oil quadrupled. The great inflation set in. The economy stagnated. The American auto industry's managers failed to respond to the increased price of oil by making more fuel-efficient cars. Foreign automobile companies specializing in fuel efficiency quickly took market share. The era of full-time production, three shifts 24-7, went away forever. Bankruptcy, or the threat of bankruptcy, hovered over future union negotiations. To preserve jobs for some of the workforce, the unions gave back benefits won over decades. They agreed to layoffs that were unimaginable that autumn. A new dynamic entered into the relationship between management and its employees. America's southern and southwestern states, with weak union laws, became an attractive place for automobile manufacturers, domestic and foreign, to set up shop. Union jobs disappeared in and around Detroit, Cleveland and the other heavy manufacturing centers along the Great Lakes. Manufacturing population shifted southwards to lower-paying work. The communities left behind were hollowed out. Detroit, where the strike took place, is bankrupt. The only automobile plant left inside the city's limits is a Chrysler plant. There is a neat symmetry to this story. The United Auto Workers Union was set up in 1933, the worst year of the Great Depression for unemployment, and also the year President Franklin Roosevelt initiated the New Deal. Exactly 40 years later, in the autumn of 1973, its economic and social foundation was taken away. The fact that it never recovered 
demonstrated something else. Society had shifted decisively away from an era of progress and entered an era of conservatism. But who knew that in autumn 1973? Those of us who were in university in that autumn of 1973 or had recently finished had lived through a paradigm shift in the culture, not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but of expectations. It was particularly true in America. For all the violence we lived through as teenagers, it was a time of hope. The New Deal vision of society still held primacy in Washington. But in the autumn of 1973, when the oil shock hit and the great inflation set in, the response was not a progressive one. What isn't understood or remarked on enough, again, because it is more anecdotal than data-backed, is that great cultural paradigm shift was the result of a remarkable coalition of two kinds of radicalism, lifestyle and political. For a few years, the two were harnessed. Liberation could be about sex, or it could be about undoing racial segregation. Liberation politics could be about your physical appearance. Hair, under the arms for women, long and flowing for men, was a political statement. Really. It could be smoking marijuana as an act of civil disobedience, or it could be about forcing your own government to end a war it was prosecuting. But as the Vietnam War wound down and the government started firing live rounds at student protesters, the coalition started fragmenting. When the great inflation set in, the split more or less became total. The need to earn a living would have come to all in my segment of the demographic bulge, but how much we had to earn was going up and up along with the cost of living. What price principles in an age of runaway inflation? The world where you could hold back and say no to business as usual was built on the same cheap energy as the post-war economic boom. One of the greatest powers of the Anglo-American version of capitalism is its ability to commodify anything. Lifestyle became a commodity, something that could be sold back to people. Woodstock generation? At Woodstock, the fences had been knocked down and the festival became a three-day-long free concert. People of all sizes and shapes took drugs, danced naked, and fornicated in the mud. That was 1969. By 1977, Studio 54 had replaced the ideal of Woodstock. There wasn't a fence, there was a velvet rope, and wannabes desperately queued for hours, hoping they were pretty enough to be selected to get inside, where beautiful people took drugs, danced naked, and fornicated in the balcony. And it was certainly not free. We make more money than the mafia, the club's owner Steve Rubel reputedly said. The poorest parts of New York were burning down while the party went on at studio. There was howling among political radicals, but to no effect. The lifestyle party was in full swing, and it cost good money to join in. Drugs cost money. Having your hair styled cost money. The partygoers tuned out the politics. While people danced or read about celebrities in People magazine, launched around this time, a great population shift from Detroit and the other industrial cities was going on. In its way, every bit as devastating as the migration out of the Great Plains during the Dust Bowl years of the Depression. By the time it was over, the Rust Belt cities would lose 40% of their population. No John Steinbeck recorded this, in the hopes of rousing people to action, although Bruce Springsteen, part of my cohort of the baby boom, told the story in songs. 
and sold millions of records and filled up global stadia singing them. The disconnection between the intentions of his work and its commodification is something he has spoken of as he has grown older, in his plain way. But for the most part, people who had gone into the streets to protest the Vietnam War were untroubled by the economic disintegration inaugurated in autumn 1973. The idea of pulling together through depression and war turned to mist and then burnt away. The New Deal's social safety net started being hacked at. It was too expensive in this inflated economic world. In Washington, 40 years on, they are still hacking. Individuals made their accommodation with the economic and political reality that had come into being. Progressive politics reflected the new age of conservative individualism. It fragmented, with many people devoting themselves to single issues, fighting for narrow causes that would benefit them alone. I grew up taking part in political demonstrations that changed history. As a journalist, I have covered conflicts whose origins are in centuries-old history and wars that will still be affecting history a century from now. I have also lived long enough to have acquired a fair amount of personal history. My conclusion is that for all the politics and ideologies and massacres, the greatest force driving history is each individual's realization that they will only live this one time, and either they seek to change the world or accept it as it is. I had to accept my place in the new world created that autumn. London, England, was not part of it. My suitcase was left behind, thrown into the bin. And yet, 40 years later, I'm in London telling you this story. Another thing about history, its turning points may be fixed, but its outcome can never be established so certainly.